Welcome back to the Yes True South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 144, and a momentous event is about to take place, one that will shape Boer-Zulu relations for centuries to come. The Battle of Blood River, or Nkomi River, is etched into the consciousness of South Africans. While the gory details are not contested, its historical significance has been seized on by different political factions since the 16th of December, 1838. The day itself is a public holiday, which we now call the Day of Reconciliation. Before that, it was known as Dingan's Day, or the Day of the Covenant, or the Day of the Vow. Anything thought of as a covenant or a vow comes with baggage. When we last left the Fortrekkers, it was October 1838, and there was no disguising the fact they were in poor shape. Measles and other illnesses had followed the Amazulu attacks. The defeat of the large Zulu army at the Battle of Khatzlaya or Fechslaya had given the trekkers some hope, but they were still heavily outnumbered. Gert Moritz had died at the age of 41 on the 23rd of September, suffering from dropsy, heart disease, and half of the foretrekkers had set up a second lager across the little Tugela River, fearful of leaving their forts in case another Zulu army bushwhacked them. They had sent a deputation to elicit support from other trekkers in the Transorangia region and the Haarfelt along the Vaal River. Only Karl Landmann remained as a senior leader in Natal, but help was on its way in the form of a man who was half dragoon, half brigand and mostly a hero. That was Andres Pretorius. He was born in Graf Rennet and his family had prospered, owning several farms around the frontier town. He was fifth-generation Southern African. His ancestors dated all the way back to the early Dutch settlement in Table Bay. His ancestor, Johannes Pretorius, was the son of Reverend Wessel Skulte of the Netherlands. Skulte had been a theology student at the University of Leiden when he changed his name to the Latin form of Skulte and therefore became Vesilius Pretorius with an A-E, then later Pretorius, dropping the A. His deep connection with Africa lent weight to his other important characteristics, this Andres Pretorius, an imposing man, tall and imbued with a captivating personality to boot. He was a skilled commander of men, adept at the irregular nature of frontier warfare. Unlike many trekkers, he could also read and write, although it was only the Bible that he read. He could write letters in a desultory manner, expressing himself well enough in Dutch. Despite his Relatively well-off position, Pretorius hankered, like the other trekkers, after true freedom from the English. He made an initial recon in 1837, travelling to Natal and across the Vaal to the Haarfeld, and had taken part in the fighting against the Amma and Dibeli. By mid-1838, Pretorius had made it all the way to the Haarfeld with his trek party, living near the Moda River, when the Natal trekkers approached him for help. Pretorius decided the hour had come and he rode to Suilar on the Little Together with a commander of 60 men on the 22nd of November. Crucially, he also bought a ship's small bronze cannon. When Andres Pretorius rode into the lager, he was joyfully received by the Fortrekkers. They had been without their leader after Moritz's death. One of those observing this arrival was the Duomini Erasmus Smit, who thought Pretorius looked a bit like a pirate, Armed as he was with a brace of pistols, his muskets slung across his back, and a large, heavy naval cutlass swinging from his hip. 
Pretorius was elected as chief commander on the 26th of November and set about forming a small army to take on Dingaan's Amabuto, as well as instituting night patrols to scout for Amazulu in the area around the Little Tugela River. He also ordered the trekkers to herd their cattle into the lagers at night to protect them against raiding and generally took charge of all operations. Pretorius had two main reasons for his decision to assist the Natal trekkers. One was the plight of his people. The other was the fear that the English would pitch up and seize the territory. The hated colonial government seemed to be everywhere, and despite the months of rolling across the hinterland of southern Africa, their tentacles reached out and touched these Boers. The trekkers had discussed this threat, believing that the English would do a deal with Dingaan and deny them the revenge for the murders of Petritif and the hundreds of trekkers along the Bushman's River. They were right about the English taking action, although wrong about their political ambitions regarding Dingaan, at least at first. As Pretorius planned and organised, so too did the English governor in the Cape, Sir George Napier, the one-armed Peninsula war vet. At the very moment that Pretorius was riding over the Drakensberg, heading to the Suilar, 14th of November, Napier was issuing a proclamation in Cape Town. This served notice that the British government was indeed going to seize Port Natal, aka Durban, and to build a fort there. The Boers had already announced their intentions. They had sought a port for their own territory, away from the British, and had formally annexed this bay for their use. The English had been following them like a focused bear. This harassment was infuriating for the trekkers, further reinforcing the perception that they were like the African Israelites, persecuted for their faith. By the 3rd of December, a British force of 114 men under the command of Major Samuel Charters and 12 officers of the Royal Artillery, along with two nine-pounder guns and 95 officers and men of the 72nd Duke of Albany's own Highland Regiment and almost a 100 other personnel, landed at Port Natal. Charters proclaimed the military possession of Port Natal, a territory defined by a boundary two miles inland around the bay. He also announced the port was now under martial law. There was a lot of vomiting. The seas were extremely rough. Still, the British force managed to move its material on shore over the next few days, and by the 12th of December, everyone and everything was ready to build Fort Victoria on the point area of Durban, overlooking the harbour. They were told not to fire on the Boers, but to defend themselves if attacked. Charters was also ordered to act to maintain peace with the African tribes, as Napier put it. This could be considered as an order to protect Dingaan without specifically saying so, further infuriating the Dutch farmers who were living in Natal. While the British force was still on the high seas, Andres Pretorius and an estimated 800 heavily armed foot-trekkers rode out of Suyalar, along with 64 wagons. Riding along in this powerful Boer army was Trekker War Secretary Jan Gerritsabankis, who is another of the forgotten fascinating characters of South African history. Bankis was born near Graf Renet and was studying at the English Albany Freemasons College in Grahamstown in 1834 when he was chosen as secretary for the Commissie Trek, or commission trek, that had been led by Piet Ace. If you recall, that was the trek that was going to explore the region around Port Natal and assess its potential as a new homeland for the Cape Boers disenchanted with British rule. Bainke's Natal Land Report was published in 1835 and documented their journey from Grahamstown and portrayed Port Natal as an ideal location. 
It was one of the reasons, or catalysts, if you like, for the Great Trek. On New Year's Day, 1837, Bankis had joined the main Fortrekker assembly under Andres Pretorius at Tabanchu. We believe it was Bainkis who actually penned the disputed Land Treaty of 1838, which supposedly was signed by both Pete Retief and King Dingan, although many claim it was missionary Owen who wrote this. I'll come back to that issue in a later episode. So, Bainkis was riding with Pretorius, seeking revenge, and was Pretorius's secretary-general. Bainkis, by the way, and his family would weave their way through South African history. He was to become one of the founders of Peter Maritzburg, and remarkably, it was one of his sons who discovered gold on the Pitvatras front. By the time that the Boer army had begun its steady march towards Dingaan, Pretorius had instilled discipline in the somewhat chaotic Trekkers' military approach. They had been disheartened before he arrived from the Haarfeld, and he managed to instill a sense of obedience. He also introduced an almost unheard-of punishment, fining Trekkers for insubordination. No more would each man dictate terms with his fellow man. Pretorius had instituted a proper chain of command with him at the summit, a single chain of command. He briefed his officers daily. As they began their march, he sent out scouting parties ahead and behind, and every night of this march they formed up in a well-defended lager. Then Pretorius posted sentries outside the ring of the wagons. There was an awful lot of movement at the end of 1838, because not only had the British soldiers arrived in Port Natal and Pretorius's commando was heading off to Dingaan, but Prince Mpande was on the run from his half-brother as well. He wasn't alone. Mpande had been joined by an estimated 17,000 of his followers after Dingaan had made moves to assassinate his half-brother he regarded as an increasing threat to his rule. Dingaan's actions followed the defeat of his army by the Trekkers at Fechlai, weakening his power in the eyes of his subjects. The Zulu king had been experiencing a number of frustrations. One was with his military commander Ntlela Kasumpisi. The highly experienced general Ntlela had served under Shaka and was also prime minister and chief advisor to Dingaan. Ntlela was the commander who was just recently defeated, along with his 10,000 warriors at Fechlai, after three days and nights of fruitless attempts to penetrate the enclosed Trekker wagon lager. General Ntlela had also personally protected Prince Mpande from Dingaan's repeated assassination plans, so he was now also in an invidious position. Dingaan wanted to eliminate half-brother Mpande because he was the only prince with children and was therefore even more of a threat to the Zulu throne. Ominously, for the Zulu military commander, Prince Mpande was married to General Ndlela's daughter, Msukileti. It was to be Ndlela's responsibility to stop Pretorius. He was in charge of Dingaan's Mgungudlova defence during the Trekkers' second attack in December 1838. Given General Ndlela's previous defence and attack experience at Italeni and Fechla during April 1838 and August 1838 respectively, Ndlela's tactical options were obviously limited. It would be better to avoid taking on the trekkers on open ground in a strong position, but that meant they would have to ride into one of Ndlela's traps. As you'll hear in a moment, some of the younger Boer hotheads tried to do just that, but Pretorius was no fool. Proven Mgungudlovu defence tactics 
were to attack Trekker commandos in the rocky and hilly terrain on the narrowing access route at Italeni, thereby neutralising the advantages mounted riflemen had over spear-carrying foot soldiers. The bad news for the Amazulu continued to stack up, because Karl Lantman then joined Pretorius on the 3rd of December with 123 Boers from the territory around Port Natal. They were supported by 60 black soldiers, led by Alexander Bigger, who was thirsting for revenge following the death of his son Robert during the Battle of Chigella only a few months before. At hand to help was Robert Joyce, who had also survived the Battle of the Tugela, and he was a useful intelligence officer. Meanwhile, Major Samuel Charters back in Port Natal had been informed of what was going on, and he dashed off a somewhat brash message to Pretorius on the 6th of December, which noted that, Having learned that a strong commander of the emigrant farmers had marched under your orders for the purpose of attacking the Zulu chief Dingaan in his own kraal, he was of course duty-bound to require of you to desist from all offensive measures against the Zulu chief. This letter wound its way inland and ended up on the small desk of Stephanus Maritz at Suilar, where the Volksrad of the Republic Natalia gathered on the 12th of December. But Pretorius had already left. Maritz took up his quill with feeling, and part of his note in return said, It has been our wish from the beginning until this moment to live upon good terms with the government, he said, as well as with our countrymen in the colony. But matters had taken on a dynamic of their own on the rolling hills between the two sets of mountains, between the half-held ridges and the hills of Italeni. Dingaan had specifically ordered Ndlela not to attack the fruit trekkers before they had been lured close enough to Mgungudlovu so that the winding defile of Italeni would lull the trekkers into his trap. The Zulu king had also said his warriors should not attack the Boers during the day. Night was best, so that their precision shooting would be limited. Pretorius, in turn, had to find a way somehow to make Dingaan's soldiers attack him in a defensive lager position at a place of his choice, far away from Ngunglovu and Italeni. Where should the Amazulu attack the Fortrekkers, and vice versa? On the 6th of December 1838, ten days before the Battle of Blood River, Pretorius and his commander, including Alexander Beggar as translator, had a meeting with a friendly Zulu chief at Danskral, so named for the Zulu dancing that took place in the kraal that the trekker commander visited. It was during this relatively friendly occasion that important information was passed along, and now Pretorius became aware of Prince Mpande's new refugee status, an important character in the coming power play. It was immediately apparent to Pretorius that the Zulu king was in a more precarious position than he had been in a few months earlier. It was also at this point that Pretorius introduced a narrative that has resonated since. He gathered the men around and said that the Fuertrekkers were a chosen people, servants of the Lord, in a just and holy cause. The religious services from then on were held every morning and evening and hammered home this narrative, and the Trekker men responded. Their morale grew as they approached the eve of this coming battle, wherever it was going to take place. Pretorius spoke of a covenant and promised that a church would be built in honor of God if the commander was successful. This reinforced the Fortrekkers' perception of a grand crusade, because the building of a church was the structural version of planting a flag in a land, seizing a land from what they regarded as heathens 
and bringing it into the light of their God. Bankies wrote that Pretorius had requested everyone pray. To God for his relief and assistance in their struggle with the enemy, that he wanted to make a vow to God Almighty, that should the Lord be pleased to grant us the victory, we would raise a house to the memory of his great name. It would prove they had a new promised land, he said. This notion of a covenant, of course, has a biblical precedent. It's a community's promise, a contract with their God. In return for a divine favor, they made a promise to undertake specific commitments for time immemorial. This was formally written down on the 9th of December at Kral, which is located on the Vassbank Spreit, very close to where Ladysmith is today. Pretorius let the commando relax and do the washing here for a few days at Vassbank till the 9th of December 1838. From Vassbank they slowly and cautiously made their way northeast from Skietdrift along a route where the towns of Winterton, Ladysmith, then Dundee are today. The rains had come, the rivers were flooding, the almost daily thunderstorms drumming the trekkers towards their fate. On the 12th of December they forded the Imzinyati, the Buffalo River, and reached the right bank of the Nkombi River on Saturday 15th of December 1838. For some days signs of the Amazulu Impi had been apparent. On the 11th, for example, Pretorius's patrols had bumped into warriors and had fought a skirmish. By the 15th, the trekkers had killed at least 32 warriors who had been spying on their movements. Dingaan, at the same time, was fully aware of where they were and what was going on. There were many more spies who survived, and he had also gathered every able-bodied man in his kingdom to defend his great place. Well, not quite everyone. Thousands had joined Prince Mpande in his temporary exile. Dingaan had another problem. The settlers of Port Natal... He had attacked them, as you know, and burned the settlement to the ground. Now he was forced to dispatch a group of the old men, not quite a dad's army, but close enough, an Amabuta of grey beards, who headed off to block any attempts by the English traders to invade him down country, as the Amazulu oral tradition puts it, Mzansi. The Zulu army he had dispatched to face Pretorius was a far more formidable group. There's a lot of to and fro about its size, but we believe there were at least 10,000 men, possibly as many as 15,000. And Lela, yes, was in command, but he must have known that this was his last chance. Alongside him was Nzobo, the other senior general. This impi had marched out on the 12th of December, the same day that Charter's letter had hit Maritz Jr.'s desk back at Suilar. Everything was a swirl of activity and action. Ndlela led his men to an area near two rocky ravines under the Mkunjani mountain, where they arrived on the afternoon of the 14th of December. It had taken three days from Mgunglovu, the warriors resting regularly, because Ndlela wanted them as sharp as possible for this coming battle. The place where Ndlela camped was not far from Ngomi River, about 15 kilometers away, and halfway between the little village of Ngutu and Mkunjani mountain. Amongst the trekkers was Hans Donstalanger, a man who'd fought the Amatkosa, the Amandebele, and the Amazulu. Of all the Boers, this was someone who understood tactics, and in particular, the tactics of the enemy. When he looked out from the Ngomi River bank, his eyes fastened on Umkunjani mountain. This was a place of interest indeed, 
an obvious spot to set up a camp on the road between Mgunglovu and the trekkers. As some of the Boers began crossing the Ngomi, Dilanga rode out with a reconnaissance patrol southeast towards the mountain. He wasn't surprised by what he saw there. Thousands of Amabutu camping below the ridge. Dilanga also knew quite a bit about the Amabutu, and he began to piece together the type of army the Boers faced by identifying the specific Zulu regiments by the colours of their shields. He galloped back to Pretorius to report his findings. It was still daylight. Pretorius gathered a group of 200 men on horseback and rode to the Mkunjani to see for himself. The Amazulu remained where they were, watching the Boers. Adversaries, they were like two prize boxes outside the ring, staring at each other. Some of the hotheads amongst the Boers wanted to charge into battle immediately, but Pretorius wasn't having it. He knew what had happened to all the other commanders who charged into a Zulu formation at a place of their choosing, and knew that defeat awaited anyone trying to outfight the Zulu in the open. Their brilliant tactic of a central section and two horns could encircle an isolated enemy on the felt in minutes, followed up by reinforcements that tended to overcome any defender foolish enough to try to outrun one of the most mobile armies in the world. No, it was going to be a battle according to Pretorius's tactics, avoiding the open. It was going to be a matter of inviting the Amabuta to launch an attack on their lager, their bristling defensive position, with its hundreds of guns, its cannon. It is said that a good leader doesn't do all the thinking himself, and so too was this preparation. Rui Pit Mulman had been a very busy chap while Pretorius was out viewing the enemy, and had formed up the 64 wagons on a gently sloping spit of land near the west bank of the Ngomi. There were no boulders or rocks on this spit. It had been cleared over millennia by the river itself. And here we have a bit of a conundrum, folks. There's a lot of debate about what this lager looked like. All sorts of configurations have been put forward over the years. Meneer Roy Piet Mulman, of course, didn't have a drawing of this thing. All he had was a clear mental picture of what he wanted to do. Does it really matter what it was? Well, in some ways, yes. Because of the very iconography, the lager itself became a symbol for Afrikaner nationalism over the next two centuries. One thing we're sure about, which conflicts with popular images of this lager, it wasn't a perfect circle. Anyway, the shape we believe was oval, with a flattened side on the southern flank, and it had a circumference of 250 metres, a diameter of 50. Back in Mkunjani, in Lela Kasumpisi, Wakwantuli was the General Lissimo, and in Zobo, Kasubadli, Wakantumbela, the Lieutenant General, the second in command, alias Dambuza, his praise name. Both were now at their campfire under the Mkunjani mountain, and they had to make a decision about next steps, and quickly. In Lela in particular was exposed. He'd been defeated by the Boers, and his sister and Mpandi were now AWOL, on the lamb, an enemy of Dingan. You could put yourself in his boots, I'm sure. But there was more. Ndlela had convinced Dingan to kill Petra Tief. He'd also convinced Dingan to kill the Boer women and children in a place that was now called Viennin, the place of weeping. He'd helped bring this historical circle to the Zulu king's front door. And Zorbo had also pressed for a violent option. Now Dambuza had to sort out the mess of his making. The narrative about these times was that Dingan was fighting against settler expansion. He was always struggling, if you like, against the expansion of colonialism. However, he had vacillated initially. He was not always the enemy of the approaching whites. 
He had opportunities to use them. He exploited their ways. He'd used the missionaries and even the English settlers at first. It was his military advisors in Lela and in Zobo who pressed for action, arguing on behalf of a military solution to the growing settler problem. Back at Mgungudlovu, the prose poets were sharpening their emotional pens around this time, and these words are still recited today. Mbuzi ka dumbuza benudlele abayebame ingandlebe yaben kezela yen ayebame ingandlebe yadabula yaked amadota. Goat of Dambuza and Ndlele, which they held by the ear, and it was patient, which he held it by the ear, broke away and destroyed men. The Zulu expression hold by the ear commonly means to give advice. Dambuza and Ndlela had advised Dingan. Destruction awaited the Amazulu, brought upon them by Ndlela and Nzobo, and their decision to kill Pitratif and the Fortrickers. Ndlela had brought this on himself. Dambuza had indulged in other violent actions over the years, and his actions were catching up. For example, during Shaka's era, when some women were captured from the house of Zwide, the Ndwandwe chief, and Dingan had taken a liking to some, Dambuza had killed them out of spite. This was a man who'd facilitated death after death, the ethnic cleansing of entire villages since the days of Shaka. He'd indulged in a power play, and like Richard III, he could have quoted, My conscience hath a thousand several tongues, and every tongue brings in a several tale, and every tale condemns me for a villain. It was time for payback. The several thousand tongues and their tales were looming. What happened next is for next episode. If you can, please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps raise the visibility of the series. To contact me, head off to desmondlatham.blog. There's an email link. Or direct message me on X at deslatham. Until next, salagatli. Thank you.